2: I'm Amin Javers, in for Brian Sullivan. Tonight, Disney just fired what may be its biggest salvo yet in its feud with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Netflix may have cracked the code for ads on streaming, but will it leave its rivals in the dust now? The eye-watering amount of money that theft is causing the country's retail giants. We've got a special report. Has President Biden lost the upper hand in the debt ceiling showdown? One senator calling for the president to take drastic constitutional action joins us tonight the rent too damn high still too damn high where the cost of living is blowing through the roof and then some and can miami beach melt the crypto winter its annual bitcoin conference is kicking off but will the flamingos outnumber the attendees that and much more in this jam-packed hour last call is up right now And good Thursday evening from CNBC's global headquarters. We'll get to those stories shortly. But first, the Supreme Court handing a big win to big tech. Today, the high court unanimously siding with tech platforms Google, Facebook, and Twitter in two separate decisions by declining to hold those companies liable for user content posted on their sites. Now, that's a protection other media companies don't have. These specific cases centered around ISIS terror posts, but the rulings have huge implications for the technology industry more broadly. Now, investors may have breathed breathed a sigh of relief today, but the court's actions may also spur Congress to pass new regulations going after tech. So what does all this mean for the companies and the future of a free and open internet? For more on all of it, let's bring in Axios business editor, Dan Primack, the Wall Street Journal's senior personal tech columnist, Joanna Stern, and Evercore's head of internet research, Mark Mahaney. Dan, let's start with you on this. I I want to understand what's coming next for investors uh, around the corner as a result of this decision today, but I also want to know what happened today
3: and why for a lot of people this was surprising. What basically happened was the Supreme Court said to big tech companies, and particularly YouTube and Twitter in this case, uh, business as usual, uh, you are not liable for what your users post on your site. And in the case of Google slash YouTube, you're also not liable if the recommendation algorithm recommends something that might be problematic. Uh, one of the reasons this was surprising, A, on the Twitter side, it was unanimous by the Supreme Court. And the person who wrote the actual ruling or the opinion was Clarence Thomas, who's of all the justices just from Paris. Past comments seem the most um critical of the rule, which is something called Section 230, the rule that basically exempts social media companies and other internet companies from being liable for user-generated content.
2: This rule around liability, Joanna, is something that social media companies have, but other media companies don't have it. Television networks don't have that kind of protection. Uh, Book publishers don't have it. Magazine publishers don't have it. It's unique to that industry. If they had made this change, it would have totally turned the internet as we know it upside down, Right.
0: Yeah, I don't want, I want to say it would have broken the internet but it it could have kind of broken the internet right yeah. it, in terms of what we see these companies would have had to or would have at least I mean look there would have been appeals there would have been a lot of things but there would have been drastic have to be drastic changes to the way algorithms and surfacing the content on these sites and on these platforms this now, where I see it really going, and this is the real big question, is how do they police, and what are the regulations around these algorithms? And that you know, there's been countless bills, there's been lots of people on Capitol Hill and and lawmakers trying to figure out that next piece. And that Section 230 part has really been at the sort of at odds with what some of those bills want to push ahead. So where this all goes now is going to be very interesting. So
2: Mark, if you're an investor, you look at this and you say, okay. Huge sigh of relief. They didn't break the Internet today, so that's good, right? These big tech giants can continue to be big tech giants. They've got this protection, you know, pretty much forever now, as far as we can see anyway. Uh, The question I have for you, though, is what's just around the corner? Because there are other lawsuits out there for some of these big companies, right? Particularly around the area I'm interested in, which is Internet addiction, right? That's an area where they could face new legal challenges. That could also go to the Supreme Court. They might not be out of the woods entirely when it comes to these big Supreme Court cases.
1: Uh, they may not be, but I, I think this was kind of the big Supreme Court decision. And and I don't know that today was a huge shock. When you listen to the testimony uh, and the briefings on this, you know, several months ago, it did seem like the justices were leaning away. Uh, I think it was uh, Supreme Court Justice Kagan who made the comment that, you know, we may not really know what we're doing here as justices. So we probably shouldn't. Uh, we probably shouldn't intervene in this case. And the fact that it was unanimous and as uh Uh, as Dan mentioned, that it was written by Thomas, uh, who was the one who was expected to maybe take issue with this. So I just think when I step back and think about regulatory risk facing big tech, I think that Famous last words. I think that big, that that regulatory risk, at least for this, you know, kind of couple of years cycle, kind of peaked two years ago. And it just seems like it's moderated since then. And people have kind of stepped back and said, well, we're, do we really know how we want to regulate these companies? And then these companies, to their credit, have taken some steps to, you know, continue to self-police themselves. Are there so, other issues that could come up? Sure, they could. But I, I think this was the biggest, I think this was one of the bigger risks. 230 is huge as a backbone for internet communication. So
2: if you're an investor tomorrow morning looking to buy or sell these you'd say maybe be a buyer based on the regulatory risk removal today?
1: Well, it's, it's never completely removed, but I just think this is a pattern here. Over the last yeah. two years, They just think that the regulatory risk is kind of mellowed and moderated versus where we were at the beginning of you know, two years ago when we were going to break up some of these assets, are we were going to require sales, you know, where we going to step in and tell them how exactly how they should uh, try to... Um, Uh, Moderate content. I mean, these are very difficult decisions. Uh, You know, these so one person's moderation is another person's, um, you know, um, shutting down of voices. There's a lot of really hard decisions, and And you just hope to have a lot of adults in the room making a decision.
2: And Dan, that's why I want to go to you on this one, because, you know, all this talk today was about, you know, well, maybe Congress will do something. Maybe Congress will step in because conservatives have concerns about uh, the Section 230 protection, as you call it, because they feel like it allows for censorship on political grounds of conservatives. Democrats have concerns about it because they feel like it allows for the radicalization of people in the United States politically. They feel it's dangerous. But they're talking so much past each other in Washington. It doesn't seem like, you, I can't see a bill coming off of Capitol Hill that solves both of those problems. And I, I think that they're out of the woods in terms of congressional regulation, too. But what do you think, Dan?
3: I, no, I agree. I agree with you and I agree with Mark on that, right? There's no agreement on this. Look, I mean, we have a Congress that can't figure out how to you know pay past debts at the moment and, and could throw the country into default, let alone agree on kind of social media policy. Yeah, I find it interesting, you know, as Mark said, Elena Kagan kind of punted and, and really was saying, Congress, this is your issue. If you want to deal with this, deal with it. But it's not just the last two years. It's really been the last five years that there's been kind of push against big tech and social media companies in general. And it doesn't matter if Democrats or Republicans are in charge of Congress or what parties in the White House. This is just not getting done.
2: Joanna, last word to you on this one. I mean, Elon Musk said on CNBC this week he wants to say what he wants to say. And if he costs him money, so be it. Does that apply to everybody on the internet today as a result of this decision? We're all gonna to get to say whatever we want and there's no liability there.
0: I, I think we learned today that it's up to the, the hands of the platform. And, I, you know, I'll say the last word here is that it looks like we're going to go through this all again now. With We're talking about AI, and, and we this has been a great panel talking about the last number of years. Well, now we're headed into a new territory for new bills and for new regulation, and it seems like we're going to do it all over again.
2: Guys, great discussion. Thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate your insights. I don't think we're done with this one yet. Maybe out of the woods today, but I think there's more to come. Thank you very much. Meantime, here's what happened to your money today. The Dow ticking up about three-tenths of a percent, the S&P jumping nearly one percent, and the tech-heavy Nasdaq rising more than one and a half percent. The biggest winner of the day was Take-Two Interactive, up nearly 12 percent today. The game maker giving hints after its latest earnings that Grand Theft Auto 6 could be coming out soon. And for the biggest loser, well, Target down more than 4%. Investors not taking kindly to its warning that consumers are increasingly watching their spending. Let's also take a look at futures and see how things are shaping up for tomorrow morning. If you look at futures markets now, uh, you can see that uh, things are uh, getting ready for tomorrow morning. Uh, future's up higher now, and we'll see where we go uh, in the morning. Up next, did Disney just throw a billion-dollar haymaker at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis? Plus, why Netflix may have discovered the road out from streaming Skid. Stay with us.
1: I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine was shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com.
4: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
2: And it's time for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, Lazard CEO Ken Jacobs preparing to step down, according to The Wall Street Journal. He's been in the role for nearly 14 years, but he'll remain at the firm working with clients. Peter Orzag, a former Obama administration official and head of the investment bank's financial advisory unit, is expected to take over. The journal says the decision has yet to be finalized. Story number two, the FDA's independent panel of advisors approved Pfizer's RSV vaccine for infants. The vaccine still needs final approval from the agency. The shot would be administered uh, to expectant mothers in the latter half of the second trimester or third trimester of a pregnancy. A final approval decision is expected from the FDA in August. And finally, TikTok influencers are suing Montana to block the state's new TikTok ban. Five creators, that is, people who create content on TikTok, filed the suit on free speech grounds, and it may be the first challenge to the ban in the state. The lawsuit also argues that it deprives TikTok users of due process. Next up, the battle between Disney and the state of Florida continues to accelerate. At the same time, the media giant continues its high-stakes push into streaming. Our Julia Boorstin is here. Julia, I can't think of a time we've seen a governor fight like this with one of the largest employers in his state. What's going on today?
5: Well, Amy, this battle continues to heat up. Disney announcing today that it is canceling plans to build a new campus in Central Florida. This campus was estimated to cost nearly $1 billion. Disney is also no longer asking the 2,000 employees in its Parks Experiences and Products division that it had previously asked to relocate to Florida to do so. Disney Parks Chief Josh DeMauro saying in a memo sent to employees, which CNBC obtained, quote, given the considerable changes that have occurred since the announcement of this project, including new leadership and changing business conditions, we have decided not to move forward with construction of the campus, saying this was not an easy decision to make, but I believe it is the right one. DeMauro noted that he remains optimistic about the direction of the Disney World business and plans to invest 17 billion dollars and create 13,000 jobs Florida over the next 10 years, saying, I hope we're able to do so. Of course, this all comes amid Disney's battle with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. On Disney's earnings call last week, CEO Bob Iger reiterated his frustration with the state being anti-business. The governor's office telling us, quote, given the company's financial straits, falling market cap and declining stock price, it is unsurprising that they would restructure their business operations and cancel unsuccessful ventures. Now, it's worth noting here, just to fact check that, the Disney did purchase the land and it did move a couple hundred people to Florida. Now it's talking about moving them back. It just never broke ground on building this complex. Now, meanwhile, ESPN is moving forward with plans to stream its flagship channel, ESPN, with a project codenamed Flagship and talks with leagues, and cable partners about securing the rights to do so, this according to a report in The Wall Street Journal. Now, CEO Bob Iger has said that he knows it's inevitable that ESPN will eventually go direct to consumer. But Iger said, quote, we know that we've got to get it right, both in terms of pricing and in terms of timing. Now, Disney's revenue from linear TV networks has been in decline as the number of households subscribing to ESPN has declined down to 74 million. That's 11 percent lower than it was in 2019. Well, of course, Eamon, We've also seen the advertising market contract, and this year is particularly tough, in terms of the ad business. Back over to you.
2: Yeah, Julia, I- I'm so fascinated by that. I underlined three words in that Disney statement that you just read. Changing business conditions is what Disney c- c- uh, cited as the reason for this decision. You think that's really what this is about or is it just politics? Because you could see this being, you know, Bob Iger trying to undo all the stuff that Bob Chapek, his predecessor, did. Uh, or you could see this being uh, a total dagger to Ron DeSantis in the state of Florida.
5: Well, look, Eamon, if you look at this back and forth between Disney and Florida, Disney can't move Disney World, right? That's a lot of physical investment. They're, they're really stuck in Florida when it comes to a lot of that parks business. But they did have leverage here. There was no reason to force employees to move. And by the way, when they announced this move that 2,000 people would have to move, a lot of people were not very happy about it. But this is an area where he can make a call and say, we're not going to go forward with this plan. We're not going to build a $1 billion complex, which, of course, is going to support the economy of Florida. This is an area where he can hit back at the state. And, you know, it's key leverage.
2: Maybe a little bit of politics in there. Julia, thank you. A lot to unpack here and no better person to do that with than longtime Disney watcher Rich Greenfield. He's the managing partner at Light Shed Partners. Rich, uh, so fascinating what we just heard from Julia there. And I wonder, as you look at this, what's more relevant to investors? Is it the idea uh, that they're changing their approach to streaming, which sort of got lost today in all the noise about uh, the Ron DeSantis feud? Or is it this feud with the governor of their home state, which might be you know enormously significant going forward?
6: Look, at the end of the day, theme parks has been the shining star. I mean, Disney would not be a $90 stock plus without the strength of its theme parks. And you've seen both, you know, your parent company, NBC, Universal, Comcast report, you know, incredible results out of the theme park business at Universal. Disney's had the same benefits. Um, you know, look, I think everyone's getting a little bit nervous about sort of attendance trends, booking trends as you head into the summer. We've seen, you know, sort of some um, concerning consumer data points over the course of the last you know, few weeks. You see the Home Depot results the other day. But look, I think overall theme parks has been the bright spot. And so, you know, Disney sort of pushing back and, and holding their ground, I think, is a clear sign of Bob Iger's leadership at Disney and something that Disney really needed. The big challenge, the reason the stock is not 120 or 130 and has been under so much pressure is sort of the core cable network businesses in secular decline. Yeah, um, you, you don't there, there's no simple fix. The challenges facing ESPN and their cable network portfolio, there is no easy answer. This has been a great business for decades and it's in secular decline. There is no simple fix. I want
2: to ask, I happen to be a person who works in the cable news industry, so I want to ask you this question, right? Uh, You know, the implications of Disney uh, moving ESPN to streaming and pulling it maybe out of the basic cable bundle, that has implications not just for ESPN, not just for Disney, but for the entire industry across the board, right? I mean, if that happens- It's a grenade. It is a
6: massive grenade. It's like pulling the trigger and setting the grenade off. There is no doubt about it. You're 100% right but it's also what the Wall Street Journal got wrong. I mean, reporting that there's a team working on a Disney direct-to-consumer strategy is absolutely true. Uh, Disney's been pretty open that they are working towards taking ESPN fully over the top. And I think what they said on the last conference call and what they've been intimating is that the time is is getting sooner, closer. But that just because it's getting closer, they've been talking about this for five years. Do I think it's a 2025 event? Sure, I think that's very possible, especially as they redo deals with uh, both UFC, the NBA. They've obviously talked to WWE. There's a lot of contracts still in play. I don't think Disney's taking ESPN Direct in 2023 or 2024. That would be a misread of the situation.
2: Do you think we're going to get to a situation where you get all these streaming networks sort of banding together and bundling their content and charging consumers for a basket of streaming networks a little bit like what we were doing with cable in the 90s and 2000s?
6: you can't put the genie back in the bottle like it just doesn't work like that i'm trying to get you to put the genie back
2: in the bottle because it's been a good industry
6: look that's the problem is that all of these companies are going to have to fend for themselves and it's why you know if you look at netflix stock which had one of its biggest days ever today was up you know ten percent there is clear sense that netflix has become a winner you know you've got disney pulling back pulling content off their service reducing the amount of investment in Disney Plus, looking to maybe combine Hulu to save money. You've got, you know, obviously, you know, you've got what's happening at Paramount and people worrying about cutting the dividend and fearing sort of their financial stability. You you, everywhere you look, there's Warner Brothers cutting back on their spend, trying to get to profitability. There's a clear sense that Netflix is a winner. Yeah. Bundling more cable or more streaming services together is not gonna be the winner. Consolidation might be, I mean, Warner Brothers Discovery merging um, with an NBC Universal could be a solution that actually creates a larger behemoth that has a better fighting chance for long-term success in streaming. But look, most of the media industry has historically been an arms dealer. They've sold content to the highest bidder. Trying to compete in direct-to-consumer streaming, it is a really, really hard business. And I think you're seeing David Zaslov said it first, right? Basically, we're going to be less of an aggressive global competitor. We're going to be more licensing content to third parties, like going back to their history. Now you see IGRA following suit. I think you're going to see more and more companies realize that streaming is too hard. What Netflix has done is not as easy as it looks. There is a tremendous amount of technological know how for the last 13 years that have gone into this. You don't just flick a switch and succeed in streaming. I think not that they're going to abandon it completely, but I think you're going to see them significantly scale back and focus on what they do best, which is creating great shows like Warner Brothers does with things like Last of Us and House of Dragon.
2: Rich, uh, it's a lot of tumult ahead in the media industry. No question about it. Thank you for your insights tonight. Clearly, that tumult is going to be an opportunity for somebody, but for who we don't know. Still ahead here, has President Biden lost the upper hand in the debt ceiling standoff? The senator demanding President Biden take an unprecedented
4: step is going to join us. That's coming up next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
2: And welcome back to Last Call. The debt ceiling debate still raging on in Washington, but there's now some fresh signs that things you know, might be moving further in the right direction. CNBC's Christina Wilkie joins us now. Christina, so great to see you. What's happening around these negotiations tonight?
7: Thanks, Amon. It's great to see you. So after six months of demanding that the White House negotiate directly with Republicans, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this week finally got his wish.
3: I'm not confident about anything in there, I, I just believe where we were a week ago and where we are today is a much better place because we've got the right people in the room discussing it in a very professional manner with all the knowledge and all the background from all the different leaders of what they want. I know and I can see where a deal can come together.
7: Amen. I was on the Hill all day today and everyone I spoke to agreed on one thing, the momentum in this standoff has shifted and it is now in Republicans' favor. Just for example, my sources told me that on all the issues on the table, right now, they're Republican demands. They're not Democrats' demands. So we're talking about redistributing unused COVID funds, potentially. We're talking about new work requirements for federal aid, streamlined energy permitting, which is popular with both Democrats and Republicans. But some of these, as you know, some of these issues are absolute red lines for progressives. And they've told the White House that, and they continue to tonight. So, but it's not just issues, it's also the timing of what's going to happen next. Top Democrats acknowledged all week that the scheduling for any potential vote, which could happen within days, is completely up to McCarthy.
8: The negotiations are currently making progress. As Speaker McCarthy has said, he expects the House will vote next week if an agreement is reached, and the Senate would begin consideration after that.
7: Good news for Republicans is bad news for Democrats. And this has set off alarms among Democrats in the House and Senate all week who worry that the president is effectively going to sell them out and make a deal with McCarthy behind closed doors, especially while the Senate is out next week that ignores progressive priorities and potentially betrays Biden's own agenda going into 2024.
2: Yeah. So interesting. How much hot water is the president in with his own progressive base? But I want to know what you think is behind this White House pivot, because just a few weeks ago, we saw the president, you know, really complaining about House Republicans and demanding that they pass a budget even before he talked to them. Uh, you know, now he's talking to them. What's going on?
7: 2024 is going on. This has now become a negotiation with three parties, whereas for the last six months, it's been just Republicans and Democrats. The White House is now its own entity. The the Biden 2024 campaign put out a new memo this morning. It says they're going to go after red states like Florida and North Carolina, potentially. They're going to look for rural voters who they didn't win in 2020. Expand the map. And you and I know the best way that Biden can do that is to make a deal with Republicans. So, amen.
2: Christina, thanks so much. Great stuff from Capitol Hill tonight. And joining me now, speaking of Capitol Hill, with more is Democratic Senator Peter Welch. He's from the state of Vermont. Uh, Senator, let me ask you this. You've got a proposal here uh, which would effectively call for the president of the United States to take a constitutional route on the debt ceiling. Explain what you want him to do here.
9: Well, first of all, I want him to stand firm that we don't default. That's a disaster for Every single American, it'll plunge us into recession. Moody's estimated that it could increase the debt by about $850 billion. So we can't default. I'm skeptical. You know, the, I hope they get a deal. And I have confidence that if there is a deal uh, with President Biden, he'll have all of our priorities in mind. But I'm skeptical because I think once Penn is put to paper, the uh, MAGA Republicans in the House are going to th- explode. And they are willing to default if that's what they think is required for them to get their way. And so your idea.
2: And so your idea here is that the 14th Amendment says that the debt of the United States has to be sacrosanct. And so therefore, the president can simply uh, continue to borrow, continue to instruct Treasury to borrow, issue Treasuries, uh, even if Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling, just blow through that and keep doing it as the executive branch.
9: Well, you're right. The 14th Amendment says what every American family knows. If you owe a debt, you pay the debt. That's essentially what the 14th Amendment says. And I want that to be an option for the president if he's unsuccessful with Speaker McCarthy so that we don't have a default, which is catastrophic for our country. That's an option that is available to prefer Congress does its job. How good of an an option is that really, though?
2: I mean, let me just uh, sorry to interrupt. Let me just ask you this, because you look at it from a financial markets perspective uh, and there's real uncertainty there, right? If the president simply issues treasury to continue selling treasuries and and buyers are out there buying treasuries that haven't been necessarily approved by Congress, you're in this sort of gray area uh, in terms of the the legality of that. It's all going to be kicked up to the Supreme Court. That could take weeks, maybe months. To resolve in between that period of time you're going to have this uncertain period where no one knows how valid those treasuries are that have been issued by the u.s government those are the absolute safe haven of global financial markets and under this scenario they really wouldn't be that could royal markets on its own no, right you
9: know, you're no you're you're exactly right this is the this is the least bad alternative The best alternative is to do what we've done under President Trump, what we've done under President Reagan, what we did under President Bush, what we did under President Obama when we had to raise the debt ceiling, which is not to authorize new spending. That's important for all Americans to know. We've paid our bills. But if it becomes a situation where the president is faced with default because they are unable to reach an agreement or invoking the 14th Amendment, with all the
2: uncertainty that you just described and I agree with, that's a better approach. How worried about, uh, about this are you? Christina Wilkie was just talking about the idea of progressives a little nervous, maybe, that Biden might undercut them here in these negotiations with Speaker McCarthy. Do you trust well, President Biden to negotiate on his own or are you worried that progressives you know, might get thrown out with the bathwater here?
9: No, I I trust President Biden. I mean, he had an incredible series of legislative accomplishments that were embraced by many of us, and he doesn't want to give that up any more than any other Democrat does. So I think he will. I, I trust him. But what I don't have confidence in is what is a radical element within the Republican caucus in the House that is willing to default. You know, I served in the House last year, and I know these folks and there's a lot of folks there that just don't think it's a big deal if America defaults out its debt. And it's sort of like a family not paying the mortgage. They get sick of paying it. They get sick of paying the car the car loan. That ends badly. And no less Last question. And bad consequences happen to a to a country.
2: Last question for you, Senator. Uh, give the prediction markets some grist for their for their mill here. What date do you think we get a deal on here, if you had to predict? We're coming up on June 1. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you know I'd have it's to have an the easy question. Board. I have no
9: clue. <laughs> it, it's nope. an easy question,
2: but I don't have the answer. Yeah, it's an easy question, but a hard answer. Senator, thank you so much. Really appreciate right. your time. Thank now you. Now let's lighten it up a little bit and head to quicker than the ticker, all the news that mattered in the world of business and one hot dog. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. Hyundai and Kia will pay $200 million to settle a class action suit over the increase in car thefts of their vehicles, in part due to viral TikTok trends. It might be one of the most expensive funerals ever. Queen Elizabeth's final farewell cost the UK government over $200 million last fall. The IRS has flagged more than a million tax returns as potential fraud. 12,617, actually fraudulent tax returns, have been filed so far this season. Dr. Joseph DeTuri broke the record for the longest time spent living underwater at Key Largo's Jewels Undersea Lodge Habitat. He's lived there for more than 74 days. The record was 73 days. Unbearably scary. Sorry, I had to. Look at this. Two bears trying to walk into a home in Colorado. One even grabs the door handle and opens it. Thankfully, they didn't walk in, and the owner of the home banged on the window to scare them away. The Oscar Mayer Wienermobile name, no more. The company announced the hot dog on wheels will now be called the Frankmobile. And there we go. Can't quite get to everything. The Frankmobile, not as cool of a name. Still ahead, the astounding amount of money that retail giants are losing to theft. What should be done to stop it? special report coming up next. And welcome back. It's time for the last call watch list. First up, Meta is on a run straight to the top tonight. The tech company outperformed the market today, closing up nearly 2% and hitting a fresh 52-week high, just below $250 a share. It announced a new AI inference chip that will help power the company's algorithms. Next up, Nvidia shares rallying 5% today, hitting their highest levels since 2021. Investors cheering its announcement of powerful new graphics cards. They're particularly uh, aimed at budget-minded buyers. NVIDIA planning to debut them next week. And finally, another 52-week high snack company Dole soaring today. Higher global prices and strong demand for fresh fruit, powering its swing to profitability in the first quarter. The fruit's most popular customers right now, bananas, pineapples. Very interesting. Now on to something else to watch out for. The staggering amount of money major retailers are losing to theft. CNBC's senior retail reporter, Courtney Reagan, has more. Hey there, Courtney.
10: Hi, Amen. So Home Depot has been calling out shrink from organized retail crime since 2019. CFO Richard McPhail told me this week shrink from theft was the biggest pressure on gross margin this quarter, saying, quote, our country has a retail theft problem. Theft-related shrink has also been called out at Walmart, Target, Dick's Sporting Goods, Lowe's, Macy's, and Roth stores, all just in recent months. Now, it's hard to know exactly how big the issue is. This week, New York City Mayor Eric Adams said retail theft was up 44 percent in 2022 from the year prior. Deloitte's U.S. retail store lead Robert Rob Harold believes it's increasing in aggregate. And an annual NRF loss survey estimates total U.S. retail shrink was $3.7 billion more in 2021 than in 2020. Why? Well, online marketplaces and social media make it easier to sell stolen goods, and they're harder to police. Thieves quickly change and create accounts and profiles. Online options also drive what is stolen, items that are more easily resold, not necessarily those that are highest value. Now, the INFORM Act goes into effect June 27th. It requires online marketplaces to collect, verify, and disseminate high-volume marketplace seller information, Further, organized retail crime rings instruct criminals to steal just below the felony threshold, so between $1,000 and $1,500 in many states. Areas with higher thresholds often have higher instances of ORC. Retailers often instruct employees not to intervene for safety reasons. Tragically, Home Depot employee in California confronted a thief last month and was killed as a result. But the hands-off approach has increased more brazen and more violent theft incidences. Now, theft dents profitability, but it also lowers tax revenue and could raise prices and annoyances for honest shoppers. 60% of consumers surveyed by Bizarre Voice for CNBC have noticed more items locked up and with security tags. Amen.
2: Courtney, thank you. Stay with us. I want to bring in retail, a retail legend who's worked at the top of major retail companies like Toys R Us and Target to add some more insight. So joining us now, uh, Storch Advisor CEO Jerry Storch. Jerry, you heard what Courtney just said there. I want to ask you about the history of this, right? I mean, it seems like when you look at these videos online, it's terrifying stuff. A crew organized, runs into the, sh- the shop, they fill their arms, they bag the stuff, and they're out in 10, 15, 20 seconds. It's very fast and very terrifying, I'm sure, for the people who are there. Have we ever really seen anything like this in retail history?
8: Well, it's been around for decades. It's just much larger now. And just like Courtney said, the objective has always been to steal whatever you could monetize quickly. So not too long ago, go back uh, just when the internet was starting, you know what it was they like to steal? Levi's jeans. Hmm. So the, 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 the criminals would come into the store, sweep off tables of Levi jeans, and there was an established marketplace to get those goods actually overseas in many cases in order to sell them rapidly, but they left everything else in the store. Now, with the marketplaces, it's easier to sell anything that's well-known, including, by the way, store's private label. Go ahead and search on some of these marketplaces and you'll see the private labels for all the retailers. As long as it's good stuff and identifiable, it's going to sell. So That is absolutely what's going on. There's a little bit of extra caused by uh, you know some of the issues we've seen in the economy so people are desperate for money as well as of course you know the the much uh, vaunted relaxation of standards in terms of policing or yeah. what we're going to put someone in jail for I want to ask you about that 80- is the marketplaces.
2: I I want to ask you on that question of policing. You heard what Courtney said in her report, right? You know, a lot of these retail outlets have simply said to the people at the front lines, you know, don't intervene. Stand back, uh, you know, when this theft is happening. Do you think that's the right approach? I mean, on the one hand, how can you expect a retail employee to serve a law enforcement function and risk maybe their life to save, you know, some deodorant that's going out the door? On the other hand, if you do that, you've just sort of created a problem and built a bigger market for it.
8: Yeah, well, uh, we've never wanted the, the asset protection people to are called in the store to actually assault or attack, you know, the criminals. So what, what you try to do is to get the police there as soon as possible, have the presence so people know they're being watched, put cameras all over the place. So the probability that we caught would be even higher. But frankly, none of that's going to make one bit of difference at the end of the day, as long as it's lucrative to do this until you cut the head of the snake off which is the marketplaces, nothing's going to happen. And it's actually a much bigger topic than we're talking about, because what it really comes down to is what are electronic marketplaces responsible for on the internet? You know, here we're talking about fencing of stolen goods. How about intellectual property rights when they're selling counterfeit goods? How about products liability when something goes bad and someone gets injured? Can they sue the marketplace? And these are big issues. They're just starting to be understood or litigated. But, you know, some of the ones I just mentioned are even bigger. Then yep. the theft issue.
2: Yep. Courtney, I want to ask you, you spend all day working on these retail issues. You understand how investors see these issues as well. And at what point does this become sort of material for the market? Does this become something that investors start demanding responses from these CEOs on or responses from political leaders on?
10: Yeah, that's a great question, Amen. And as Jerry mentioned, this is not a new issue. This has been going on for some time. I mentioned, actually, that I've been talking about it and kind of digging into it since before the pandemic. And the pandemic sort of exacerbated issues in a different way in this area. But what was very interesting is that this week, Target actually quantified the number that it associates with shrink. And shrink, of course, in retail is loss of any kind. That could be employee theft. It could be, like we're talking about, organized retail crime. It could be just damaged or spoiled. Oiled goods, but Target quantified it and said $500 million more dollars will be lost from shrink this year than in last year, and they quantified it last year for the first time. And truly, Amen, that is one of the first times I can remember a retailer ever putting a number on shrink, And so it becomes yeah. material to investors when you're talking about numbers like that. Numbers that, that Target decided to quantify. We've been asking other retailers about this for some time. They'll bring up shrink in total, but aren't really pulling out that total ORC, that organized retail crime number. And they're certainly not putting a number on it like Target is. But Target felt compelled enough to talk yeah. to the market about it because it has become material for it.
2: Courtney, it's frustrating stuff. It's scary stuff. Thank you so much to CNBC's Courtney Reagan, Storch Advisors CEO, Jerry Storch, both of you for your insights tonight. And coming up, if you can make it here, well, you might be living in a shoebox. The astronomical rise in New York City's rents will have you doing a double take. Want to know what it costs now? Those numbers on the other side of this break.
0: I'm reducing rent, rent and will reduce rent. I will reduce the cost for businesses across this state. That's rent one
2: is minute, too Mr. McMillan. Remember that moment? It was the New York governor election debate back in 2010. It's when Jimmy McMillan, the candidate from the Rent is Too Damn High party, took the stage. That's right. His party was the same name as his slogan. And it's safe to say that Jimmy was on to something. Back in 2010, the median price of an apartment in Manhattan, just over $2,900. That was pricey even by 2010 standards, but today that number has skyrocketed to more than $4,200 a month. That's according to a new report from Douglas Elliman. That's a 43% increase over the past 13 years. So just how much higher will these numbers get? Joining me now, Brown-Harris Stevens CEO, Bess Friedman. Bess, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate your expertise on this. How did the rent get so damn high?
11: Well, I think it's dwindling inventory. Uh the demand has gone up incredibly and you know we're still reeling with the effects of the pandemic. And so it's just been a situation where landlords now don't have to give concessions and remember that for landlords it's gotten more expenses for them because rates have gone up. And I think part of the rental market you have to pay attention to the fact that Some would-be buyers have opted to rent simply because of the fact that rates went up. So I think there's all that push in the rental arena, and we're seeing these prices so high. I've had so many friends reach out to me and ask me what should they do because their lease is coming up. Should they go out there and look for something else, or should they stay put? And many people are just opting to stay put because prices have really gone up. It's a tough environment. And I think the economy is recalibrating right now.
2: But back during the pandemic, everybody said New York City is dead. People aren't going to want to live there. They (laughs) want fresh air. They want rolling hills. Forget it. Manhattan is done. But now, and
11: they did, and, and but but you know what? But Eamon, you know that that's what happened, and when we saw these vacancy rates of thirty percent in New York City. People left; they fled to Connecticut, the Hamptons, and Palm Beach. That was a reality. But then what happened is that people came back to New York City because people wanted to be here, and people are coming here to work, and there's companies that are here, and so we saw that for a minute. But now people yeah. have returned to the city. What and about so, the rest of the
2: country, real quick? I mean, is New York City just sort of sui generis? It's on its own, or if you're in. Philadelphia or Minneapolis or San Diego, are you seeing the same kind of trends?
11: We're seeing the same kind of trends. I mean, even in places like Boston, the rents are just going up. It's become almost unaffordable for people. And so I think now people are starting to think, should I buy? Would this be a good time to buy? They've accepted the fact that rates are probably going to stay around 6%. It looks like inflation is trending downward, which makes people feel good. So I think if you can afford to buy, it might be a great time to take a little bit of money and buy something versus rent if you can.
2: So so buy now. But what's coming next? Right. What's going to be the next big inflection point? We, nobody saw the pandemic coming, obviously. But if you had to look out <laughs> six months, a year, two years, what's going to change this trend and get the rent a little bit damn lower?
11: I mean, I think it's going to take some time. That's a great question. I don't know, because right now we've been saying for a long time that they have to stabilize, rents have to come down, and they just keep going up, uh, because the demand is there. When you have the demand and the supply is light, this is what happens. And so people are just going to have to wait and see. Maybe if people start to buy more versus rent, then that will ease that up, and then prices can go down. But landlords shouldn't be... um, you know, blame for this because they also have to pay bills. Things have yep. gotten more expensive yep. for everyone. So it's sort of, we're all trying to work within the community together to try to make sense of things.
2: Bess, thanks so much. Appreciate it. I'm You're welcome. so glad for thanks, New York Amen. City that they are back in business. <laughs> and speaking too. of New York City, from Musk to the Mets, fresh off his exclusive with Elon Musk, our very own David Faber tossed out the first pitch at City Field today. David, a die-hard Mets fan, and he may have been their good luck charm today. The Mets went on to beat the Tampa Bay Rays 3-2. to Nicely done, David. I don't think he scored any of those runs, but it was a great day at the park. And coming up, Bitcoin Miami is back. But is the excitement on South Beach exactly what it used to be? Our own Mackenzie Sagalos is taking a break from the sun and sand to lay out what makes this year's conference different from any we've seen before. The biggest crypto conference in the world is happening right now in Miami Beach. It's called Bitcoin 2023. But the so-called crypto winter may have dampened the excitement around the event. Roughly 12,000 people are expected to attend Bitcoin 2023. That's less than half from last year's event. CNBC's Mackenzie Sagalos joins us live from the crypto conference in uh, Miami Beach. Mackenzie somehow got this assignment. Mackenzie?
12: Hey, Eamon. So this year's Bitcoin conference is happening amid a very different backdrop from 2022 when the crypto craze was in full swing and just before a series of notorious bankruptcies began to erode confidence in the sector. You can sense that bear market vibe and expected attendance and the footprint in the convention hall, which has been cut in half. But talking to some of the biggest speakers on the ground here, they don't seem phased. Michael Saylor, for one, tells me Bitcoin is ready to make a comeback.
8: I think uh, Bitcoin's found the bottom. I think the leverage is out of it. I think we're on a bull run. The entire world is confused about what happens next. So continual education, communication and interpretation of all the activities in the finance markets and especially the crypto markets in every country in the world is what keeps me up at night.
12: Author Michael Lewis of The Big Short is here ahead of his next book on Sam Bankman-Fried as our two presidential contenders, including Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's here talking about his pro-Bitcoin platform. I also spoke to attendees, some of whom paid more than $20,000 for VIP access, also known as the Whale Pass. They say they're still all in on Bitcoin. Ultimately, organizers blame the current bear market for the drop in attendance, but they tell me that they will keep going with Bitcoin 2024 next year. Of course, how many people go next year will no doubt depend on Bitcoin's 2023 performance. It's up more than 60% year to date, around $27,000. But that is a far cry from its November 2021 all-time high of $68,000 that drove hordes of people to Miami Beach last year.
2: Mackenzie, it's good to see that they are still soldiering on in Bitcoin land. Uh, But look, you're in Miami. The mayor there really billing his city as the crypto hub of the country over the past couple of years. But so much has changed since this event was held last year. Is Miami still all about crypto or is this a failed experiment at this point?
12: Yeah, you're right. You know, last year they were billing the city as the future of the crypto industry. You had Miami coin trading on a global exchange, the Miami Heat basketball team playing in FTX stadium. I mean, there was a giant crypto bull outside and you know, this one behind me much smaller, but this year Miami coin has dropped by more than 99% and trading has been suspended. FTX signage has been erased from the arena and Mayor Suarez has shifted his attention from building a crypto capital to generative AI. I was actually in this exact same expo hall a couple weeks ago. at the Emerge Emerge Tech Conference in Miami and Mayor Suarez said that generative AI has real use cases right now. Well, crypto, not so much.
2: So you're saying there's less bull at the conference this year, smaller bull this year anyway.
12: (laughs) There's a smaller bull this year.
2: Mackenzie (laughs) Sigalas, thanks so much. Really appreciate that. Tough assignment in Miami Beach. Meanwhile, do you know what happened 11 years ago tonight? One of the biggest social media companies in the world went public. Let's take you back in time to May 18, 2012. Meta, formerly known as Facebook, went public at $38 a share. The social media giant raised $16 billion making it the eighth largest IPO of all time. Since then, Meta's stock has surged by more than 500%. So what does that mean in dollar terms? Well, if you had invested $10,000 on Meta when it went public, you would now have more than $60,000 in the bank. You didn't do that, though, did you? Now, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. That's it. That's last call for tonight. We'll see you right here tomorrow night.